Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Clark, and welcome to Brooklands. And as ever, thank you for supporting the Trust. A special welcome to our live stream audience around the world, which is uh, quite a nice thing to say, really. But we know there are a number of people watching in America this evening, or this afternoon, or this morning, or wherever you are. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I freely admit that my knowledge of Cobb and the Crusader is kind of thin. And when I've spoken to other people, I think they're in exactly the same way. Um, and as I say, I suspect many of you in the audience don't know a great deal. But I know a man who does. Okay, will you please give a very warm welcome to our special guest this evening, Steve Holter. You'll have to forgive me, I've not driven this yet, so. Um, obviously, I've been invited here tonight to talk about John Cobb and Crusader. Uh, so my first thought was, is only there was a book about it. And that sort of sounds like a flippant comment, but it's not meant to be. And the reason I say that is September 2022 will be 70 years since John Cobb met his end. And in that time, there have been... 12 de dedicated magazine articles and approximately two books. The first book was, and, and the, six, the magazine articles were all within three years of the accident. Um, the first book was The John Cobb Story by Sammy Davis, who I was fortunate to meet, who confessed it was a bit thin because nobody really knew anything to tell him. Uh, the second book was by a chap called Barry Stobart Hook, and when I spoke to Barry, he freely confessed that he had a portion of Vosper's archive. So he sort of grudgingly admitted it might be slightly biased. Um, that led to the, the idea of doing the Crusader book with the encouragement of uh, Reed Relton's daughter, Sally. Now, funnily enough, recently uh, a well-known author contacted Sally and said, I've seen Holter's book. It doesn't have a bibliography. And the definition of a bibliography is a list of books, magazine articles or websites that an author has used for information or to reinforce their manuscript. There were only two books. There were only 16 magazine articles. So I chose not to use any of them, but just rely solely on first-hand archive, written comments, or material that I could substantiate very well without risk of getting anything wrong. Hence the reason in the book, the photographs of letters, just to make sure that there's no argument, I haven't relied on anybody else, it's history as it happened. Now I'm going to guess that it's the forward button. It is. So to get to where we meet the team at Loch Ness, a little bit of background history because some people know as much as I, uh, yeah, probably some people do know much, as much as I do. Um, some know nothing. This is John Cobb at 21. He was born uh, 2nd of December 1899. Wealthy family. Uh, his hobby seemed to be cycling around the Esher area trying to time himself. And from a very early age, I think it was eight years old, his hobby was trying to beat the clock. 
not so good in competition with other people, a bit like Sir Malcolm Campbell, who um, excelled at single-man sports, uh, bizarre ones like ram riding at uh, the school he went to. So he excelled at this sort of thing and sort of gravitated towards Brooklands because he was born not far away. There he met a chap by the name of John Godfrey Parry Thomas, um, which is where the, the subject starts to get complicated. And you might find me going backwards and forwards here, mainly because I'm forgetting what I'm saying, but partly because it's a, it's a complex story. And the, it's very difficult to go chronologically with something that j jumps around through history. So you'll have to bear with me a little bit. Parry Thomas started uh, work at the Leyland plant to design the luxury car, the Leyland 8. His assistant, design assistant, was a chap by the name of Reed Anthony Railton. Cobb met Godfrey, uh, John Parry Thomas at Brooklands and became a sort of unofficial sponsor. And through that, he was allowed to drive Babs. Now, Babs was uh, a bit of a Heath Robinson device, I think that uh, anyone would admit, based on the old Hyam special. But Parry Thomas brought it with the intention of showing what his company, the Thomas Invention Co., could do with any vehicle. And it just happened that John Cobb liked to drive big cars. So that's how that came about. Unfortunately, as we know, uh, Parry Thomas was killed in 1927 and the company became Thompson and Taylor. Cobb moved across as unofficial sponsor and commissioned Reed Routon to design for him the Napier Routon, the Napier Routon with a 27, uh, 24 litre, so many engines, 24 litre uh, broad arrow engine, not a W12, but a broad arrow 12, um, for mainly outer circuit racing, but with always the intention of class records at some stage. It led to a very large car. It led to a very large car, uh, shown here outside the Hudson Car Works uh, showroom, and I think that's Ken Taylor in the background, uh, the Taylor of Thompson and Taylor. And it's a car that's here to be seen, that's survived the, the ravages of time, and certainly set Cobb on a route to speed records. Thompson and Taylor and Reed Railton weren't just about engineering other people's cars. This is Goldie Gardner's MG EX135, and this is where the genius of Reed Railton starts to show. This car was designed solely on paper with slide rules. Uh, a chap called Reg Beauchamp, who I was very lucky to meet uh, many years ago as a schoolboy, I was the schoolboy, completely designed by slide rule pencil and paper, only tested in a wind tunnel as a full-size car. And at one time, every speed record for weight, endurance, or outright speed was held by a car designed or partly developed by Reed Routon, either driven by Goldie Gardner or John Cobb, which is some record. This led on, we see here John Cobb, and uh, the chap next to him is Ken Taylor. 
This is the construction of the Napier Route and Special Land Speed Car, and again shows the ingenuity in Reed Routon's mind. The car had an S-shaped chassis, one engine drove the back wheels, the other engine drove the front, and by now, the bond between Cobb as the financier and the, the challenger to records and Routon as the designer was firmly set. Just the other side of the clubhouse where we're standing at the moment, this is the car when it was first released. As you can see, Thompson and Taylor above the window. This is before the aerodynamics struts, uh, shrouds are fitted to the wheels. Uh, still had the air brake, but shows the, the extraordinary thinking of Railton. And what I will mention before we go uh, any further, because it will come back to us, this is the car post-war. Between the period of pre-war to post-war, several modifications took place. Some to the uh, ignition, supercharger gearing, but one of the important changes was the attitude of the car to the track. Relton's calculation showed that if he had, uh, adjusted the angle, there was more speed to be gained. What he was after was a way of adjusting that whilst the car moved, which is an important point later. Of course, all the time this is going on, Reed Routon's also involved in the Bluebirds of Sir Malcolm Campbell. And the difference between working between Cobb and Campbell was money. The amount of letters I saw between Sir Malcolm and uh, Thompson and Taylor or Vospers complaining how much something had cost. I can get that for three pence less. And Bluebird K3, here's a fine example. Um, Relton's job was to involve, include as much of the old car in the boat as possible. The reason I've put Bluebird K3 there is this was a boat built in traditional methods. So it had plywood bulkheads laid out on the floor and cut from single sheets like a giant model boat. And this was to increase the integrity and strength of each bulkhead and the structure around it. K3's problem was it was a single-step hydroplane, which is very unstable. And Routon had been to America and discovered the three-point hydroplane. This is K4. Um, this is designed as much by Fred Cooper as K3 was, uh, but there were a few problems, shall we say. And Cooper left the project, and Vospers, instead of uh, Saunders Road, built K4. Very similar construction method. Same problem, Sir Malcolm Campbell saying to Roughton, you need to include as much of the last boat as possible. What we take from this picture is the broad front of the craft, which caused the front to lift at speed. And the bulbous nose was an idea of Cooper's to create uh, a degree of downforce. This comes back to us late in the story as well. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Roughton wanted to find a way of adjusting the car. He looked at a way of adjusting the suspension whilst it was moving, or just tipping the bodywork by including uh, hydraulic struts to lift the bodywork. And to this end, he met with uh, two brothers in America, uh, William and Learned Meacham, who were looking at uh, building a hydroplane and decided that it would be interesting to put the forward, one shoe at the front and two at the back, as opposed to the conventional method. 
And the reason they did that, and you can just see at the rear of the uh, craft shown in the patent, was to hydraulically alter the attitude of the planing surfaces. And Relton spoke to them and wondered if this could be included in the body mounts of the car or the suspension. And this predates active suspension in Formula One by decades. It was never done in the car, unfortunately. But something obviously stuck with Railton because of the three-point layout that he was going to use later on. Uh, this is the chap I met many years ago, Reginald Beauchamp. And I remember many years ago going to his house, cup of tea biscuits, and him showing me some drawings. And he said, I bet you don't know what that is. And I said, no. And it was the preliminary drawings that Railton and he had done of Crusader. And they predated anything that I'd read before. And Reg was an extraordinarily gifted draftsman, but a good engineer on his own. And he worked alongside Ken Taylor, Reed Routon, and uh, Ken Thomas. Uh, you can just see in the background the, the Napier land speed car. But between these people here at this circuit, they sat, and as Reg told me, over tea-fueled meetings what they needed to do that was different from before. And the next photograph is slightly misleading because it's further into the project, but it does show what they were discussing. Following on from the Meachams was to have one forward shoe, two rear shoes, thus getting rid of any aerodynamic lift at the front. And by now, Sir Malcolm Campbell had dabbled with the jet engine, shall we say, unsuccessfully. And Routon had already seen a way of using the thrust of a jet engine as opposed to a propeller with its associated drag and ancillaries underneath the craft. So this is slightly further into the project, but it shows Routon's thinking in the early stages because you've got this curious uh, one and a half step. So, the, so as you try to lift the boat from its displaced state to its hydroplaning state, it's an equivalent of using wedges to force the vehicle up. Relton was working with a chap called uh, Douglas Van Patten, who was designing some extraordinarily bizarre hulls in America. And Relton saw something in what his thinking. So he was quite happy to share information, and Relton's quite strange in that he was... Uh, very happy to share data and information where a lot of people kept it to themselves. And this is what Crusader could have looked like had it been built totally to the early thinking. You can see the basic shape of the hull doesn't differ a lot, and the one and a half step slightly confuses the bottom of the hull. And take the fins away, and you can just see where the rear sponsons come into it. But it shows that Railton was thinking way ahead of what anybody else was considering doing. Um, and therein lay the problem. Because post-war, to build anything from uh, a property to a wooden building, you needed a construction licence. Materials were extraordinarily scarce. Even wood had to be pre-ordered and uh, allowed by the Ministry of Supply to be sold to people. They had to prove what you were going to use it for. 
And what Railton was proposing for Crusader was possibly ahead of the materials available. I know, I know from my research that he did at one time speak to Saunders Row, who had built the, and I've got to get this right, the SRA-1 flying boat, which was, the, I think it was called the Jug. And this was an all-metal construction jet flying boat. And Rel I know at one stage Relton thought that Crusaders should be constructed all-metal, uh, much like a, um, a later flying boat. No wood at all, but access to the materials just wasn't going to happen. So they stepped back from this. Now, going back to Malcolm Campbell, this is a photograph of the Goblin jet engine installed in K4. And this is one of these photographs that's here, but we'll refer to later. It shows that the propulsive, propulsive uh, unit that was going to go into K4 was the typical British design of the time, uh, a radial flow jet. Uh, we had axial flow jets. The, the barrel jet engine in Bluebird K7 is an, uh, is an axial flow. Axial flow just makes for a longer, smaller diameter engine, which can be difficult to package. The more readily available engine at the time was the radial flow, and you can see the combustion chambers are out the outside. This led to a lovely short engine. It also led to a lovely big round engine of a very high diameter that raised the thrust height of the engine probably above what it should have been. So Malcolm Campbell suffered dreadfully. And this profile picture of Bluebird K4 on its rollout shows just how much the engine increased the centre of gravity and the thrust height of the engine. Railton was not impressed by this conversion. Uh, I've, I've seen the communication between uh, Railton, Malcolm Campbell and uh, Peter Duquesne. Uh, it, basically he said it's never going to work, it will never work, you cannot just convert something and expect it to work. And you, you sort of see that and you think it is a bit piecemeal. So we start the model development, an agreement's been made between uh, Routon and Cobb, two very close friends, uh, worked together for years, and Vospers. And we ask ourselves, well, why choose Vospers? Well, basically, they were the only people that had built water speed record boats that had a jet engine in. Um, but... They had built a boat to somebody else's design, which was the Apple, Apple, sorry, um, three-point hydroplane that had been de uh, developed by Fred Cooper. And the jet engine was just merely a conversion. So their experience was dubious, shall I say, without being too provocative, but not the best thing to do. So once a contract well, I say a contract, I've never found any record of a signed contract between Cobb, Routon and Vospers. So I have no idea what the agreement was. I know money uh, changed hands. I think uh, Crusader cost John Cobb £15,000 of his own money, which is equivalent, I think, of about £1.25 million. Um, I find it difficult to believe it was done on a handshake. 
but there is no paperwork to show anything other than this was a customer supplier deal. But I can only assume, we can only assume there's no paperwork. Relton's problem was he felt that too much emphasis was put on model testing. And I must admit, I read the documentation, I read the letters, and I thought, what's the problem? And then I looked at my experience in motor racing and contemporary Formula One teams use CFD and computer models. Prior to that, uh, quarter scale models, revolving wheels with a rolling road. So the, inter the interaction between the car and the sur road surface was taken into account. Even the effect of the spinning wheels was taken into account. What VOSPAs were doing were testing models like this one in tank tests by towing it through a tank as fast as they could, hopefully at a scale speed that it would attain. I think this, what this particular model in the picture is one-sixth scale. And we've all seen Stingray, the cartel puppet show on the television, and it shows the explosions. And when there's a ship at sea and it explodes, you always look at it and think, those drops of water are very big. You cannot scale water. So if you make a 1.6 model and run it through anything other than glass flat water, it does not scale. The resistance doesn't really scale. The size of the waves don't really scale. So you have a 1.6 model being dragged across water and then a one-quarter scale model being put in a wind tunnel. And then trying to collate the information gathered from one medium to another medium whilst the next model was a 163 running model that has been let loose out on the river outside Vospers. And Railton wasn't happy with the way this uh, data could be collated, because basically it couldn't. And as the author of this book, and reading the notes of other people at the time, you definitely got the impression of people trying to be tactful, but trying to point people in the right direction. And the sense of frustration in some of the correspondence. Cobb asking Railton, is this the right way to go? Railton saying to Cobb, not really. Can you not just go down and, and say, why don't we just build one model, run it in the tank, and use the same model in the wind tunnel? and then the same model as a free runner, and the same stonewalling. We've always done it this way. And this also went on to construction, where certain materials were being suggested, but certain materials were being vetoed. And this picture is quite important. This is the final general arrangement drawing. I was told I could point with this, but... but I'm not pointing with this. I am pointing with this. Um, points to take in from this are the alley mounting hoops for the engine and both the mounting arms for the sponsors. Also, this line here. Now, this lines up with a bulkhead and at early early design uh, 
times, Vospers had decided unilaterally by themselves that the craft would be launched by lowering the cradle into the water, whereas Roughton had already decided the easiest thing is to lift it off the cradle, drop it in the water. And to that end, he had decided there should be another alloy hoop here, which would be interconnected with these two rears, two stern ones, I should say, and the four ones also connected at the shoulder height of cob and along the bottom. And that would allow for punch loads here, where the water would want to push the bottom of the planing surface in. And the punch loads would then be distributed around the metal frame. It also gave a safe place to mount the rudder and an ideal place for a lifting hook here and on the middle of the three ring bulkheads. Now, earlier I said with Bluebird K3 and K4, what you did is you got plywood because this is the material that was decided to be used. And as you can see, they are cut supposedly from single sheets of seven ply birch keeping their integrity and strength. But if you look here at the rear of the forward planing shoe, there's a drop there that goes into the body of the planing shoe that holds the wedge. And you'll also notice that there's no alloy frames mounted at the rear where the engine's to go. So the wooden framework has been framed up before the alloy rings have been put in. Now, one of the other problems is you have a man like Railton who is suggesting modern materials, modern construction techniques. He's liaising with a chap called Ian Corlett, uh, who was British Aluminium's representative, who was suggesting what materials could be used. Uh, they were both talking to Vospers, who, and in all fairness, were doing their best to use the materials available that they could get hold of, that they were allowed to use, but also what they were forced to use. But there seemed to be a lack of um, grasp, shall we say, of quite what it was Roughton was trying to achieve, and also a lack of grasp of the forces that were going to be involved. And I'm trying not to be too technical, um, because it's, it is a complex subject when you start getting into the, the punch loads and the lifting loads. And besides, I'd like you to buy the book, and it makes sense perfectly in the book. So, But what you get is when the construction really gets going, you find little things like, well, if there's going to be a jet intake there, where do those bulkheads go? Where are the bulkheads from the cockpit opening? Now, on the first to admit, they can be braced afterwards, but you've already lost a lot of your, um, I was going to say chassis rigidity, but that's my car speak, the hull rigidity. You're starting to lose that by cutting the bulkheads that you've tried to keep as one piece. And although the bulkheads have gone, the alloy ring bulkheads have gone in, as you can see here, you can see there's the 
uh, bottom trunnion mount for the engine, the fuel tank's been installed, you have the stern alloy bulk ring, and that's the forward one, but you'll notice no metal connecting the two horizontally at waist height or along the bottom of the hull. And at this time, Roughton wasn't totally sure what was being included and what wasn't being included in the build, uh, which is more than evident from the communication between the two. And I, I think uh, when I sent the first draft of the book off to Mark, who I would like to congratulate on his great uh, award last night of uh, lifetime achievement as an editor, I think it's fantastic. Um, Mark actually quizzed, uh, quizzed, why so many letters? And I said, because there's something not right in the communication chain. And you have to qualify this by saying, uh, I could phone my auntie in Australia this afternoon and it wouldn't be a problem. I just dial it and if she's in, even if she's in the local supermarket, I can speak to her. We're talking about booking a phone call three to four days in advance, restricted to three minutes. So you didn't have to have maybe a telegram or a telex. Uh, very short, very expensive. So all the communication between Cobb and Roughton, who was in California, Duquesne and Vospers with Cobb, so that's Southampton to London, or both of those to California. I, had, I was fortunate to work through a triangle of communication, Cobb to Railton, Railton to Duquesne, where a simple conversation could take between 10 and 12 days. So a simple question, where should we put that bolt, could take ages. So at no time it, did it appear to me in the communication did Roughton know what was going on with the construction? The inside of the engine bay shows quite clearly that at some stage the engine intakes have come inboard of the bulkheads. And you can see the fuel tank just about in this picture. And you can see where the top half of the ring bulkhead is removable for the engine. Um, but it's still a strange thing in that Cool, uh, Ian Courtlip from British Aluminium and uh, Vospers were still having this, these strange conversations because you can't mix materials. There's a, um, a formula of modulus of materials where some are more flexible than others, some give more than others. So you can't just bolt these bulkheads into a plywood hull. There had to be some thinking. And then again, conversations between British Aluminium and Vospers, you can't do this. But these things were still being done for whatever reason. As we get to nearing completion of the hull, you see the forward bulkhead or ring bulkhead has been removed, but you can see where it bolts. You can see how the alloy rings form the basis to hold the sponsons, engine, jet pipe, and the birch ply used to skin it. So you also see that these bulkheads are the only ones strengthening the rear. So what would it have looked like had it been built as planned? And you can see clearly, and this is a, a, a nice 
computer graphic that was done for me by Mick Hill uh, from Ridge Beauchamp's original sketches that Railton approved. And you can quite, oh, pardon me, you can quite clearly see that along the bottom, an alloy box section, the rudder would attach there, the forward ring, lifting eye, the safety cage for Cobb's seat, horizontal member there making up, for want of a better term, a, a space frame for the engine. All the punch loads from the forward shoe would have gone into the frame and there's nothing forward of the forward uh, planing shoe that would have as much impact planing in perfect conditions. Um, the only difference between drawings and schemes at this time was basics like fuel, placement, ballast, etc., balance of the hull. I have no idea from any communication at what stage Vospers decided that anything forward of here wasn't required. Then you have the next deviation. This is the original Thompson and Taylor drawn just over the road from where we are. Uh, I think this was designed by Reg and Ken Taylor themselves. It shows a cast frame with a plain steel plate. The idea was you bolted the plate in, you could take it out, shorten it, uh, tested uh, high speeds to snap if presented sideways to the moment of travel, etc. Um, and because it was plate steel, incredibly high tensile strength, uh, razor sharp at the front edge, but very thin. So it presented no frontal aspect to the direction of travel. Uh, that's how it was designed to be. Uh, a very good picture that shows how much thought had gone into the rear arms and the alloy hoops at the stern of the craft. And this is again where we see the uh, diversion between Routon's thinking and what was happening at Vospers. And I'm, I'm, there was never any uh, desire whilst writing the book, to point a finger, to hang a coat on a hook, who did what, where or why. Vospers were basically building what they could uh, with the materials they had. But there seemed to be this strange aversion, and I have to point the finger, unfortunately, a little bit at Peter Duquesne because he, he, he signed the letters, but it might be that he had given the drawing office the calculations to do for stresses. He was just the middleman. But there seemed to be an aversion to thinking that the highest impact loads at high speed would be at the front of the craft. They all seemed to think at Vospers it would be the back because of the weight of the engine. I have no idea. But every communication seems to suggest we need all the strength at the back. We need all the strength at the back. And all the letters coming back from Los Angeles were saying, yes, but the front hits the water first. The backs are hitting rough water. We need to strengthen the front. But as long as the bulkheads are all in place, we can work with it. So, as I say, there's, there's very little way of telling what was going where. This gave John Cobb a lot to think about. And some of the letters are... Um, they're quite blunt, basically. Um, do you think we should do this? 
Uh, is it being done correctly? And this was at the time where there was a, yet another facet of the design that was being, uh, I can only say badly handled. If you look at a high-speed hydroplane, if you look at a decent flying boat, or if you look at uh, the floats of a seaplane, as they come towards you, you cannot fail to notice that there is a V to the surfaces that hit the water. And it doesn't take uh, a nautical architect to realise that if a narrow surface with a curve to it hits high water, it will cushion the impacts. And some of the letters regarding the planing services of Crusader are quite, quite stunning. Um, indeed, in one, Railton said, is there no chance of it's just a little V on these shoes? Because they're going to look at these and laugh. We're, people are going to look at them and think, this is wrong. And I'm a great believer in the old adage, if something looks right, it is right. And I've looked at the planning services. And you, how many high-speed high craft have you ever seen with flat surfaces? It does, doesn't, doesn't happen. The only ones I can think of are the airboats that you see in Florida. And uh, they work on a different principle, their air cushion. Uh, this had to get from full displacement at low speed to just kissing the water at full speed. So you had to lift it onto those planing shoes. But you also had to make sure that when it hit anything out of the ordinary, there was a way of displacing or dispersing any impacts. And the, the diversity between the figures calculated by Railton and the figures calculated by Vospers are anything up to 18G. Railton's being the highest. And when you read uh, a statement where someone of the calibre of Railton says, you do realise that at a single stroke we can alleviate all this with some V in the planing surface, it's less of a problem. But of course, if that front planing shoe has a little V and it's going onto a, the ring bulkhead, at least the punch loads are going somewhere. And as we've seen, that's already likely to be a problem. But Crusader was built the way it was built. There's no argument. It turned up uh, in uh, August 1952 and was not new to the water. It had been run in Porchester Harbour originally to test for leaks. But for uh, reasons that I can't find, Peter Duquesne decided to start the engine and see if he could get it planing. And if anyone has been fortunate enough to see the extraordinarily rare colour footage taken by Castrol, uh, it was launched uh, pre-being painted. Uh, the test for leaks was more or less just put it in the water and Harry Cole, the uh, engineer-in-chief sticking his head through the bottom and saying, no, there's no water in here. And 20 minutes later, Peter Duquesne's trying to get 
Crusader up onto the plane, particularly rough seas. I can't find a record of what was found when it was brought back, but Railton's comment to Cobb was it was foolhardy to try that. And I can't help thinking that something might result from what happened today. Flat calm, John, flat calm. And if any few words have stuck to me through this book, it's the terms flat calm. Loch Ness is a large body of water and tends not to be flat for long. Uh, this is Cobb returning, I believe, from his first, one of his first runs. And it was during these runs that they started to find damage. Now, I know someone's just seen that picture and thought, there's Dad. Um, that's Basil Cronk at the front with the glasses and behind is a chap I met and I shall never forget his generosity because uh, as a schoolboy he must have looked at me and think, why are you asking me these questions? Uh, that's John Bennett uh, who I was quite surprised as a schoolboy to be told, call me lofty but he was a lot taller than me. Um, this shows... It's an illustration more than actually what it shows. It's an illustration that to remove the engine, the boat had to be outside. They had to use the coals crane to lift the engine out. Uh, to lift the engine out, the ring bulkheads had to be split. And that was the time to inspect the bottom of the hull. This is actually it being put together when it arrived, but it just shows the cramped conditions they had to work in. And then we see the damage or the beginning of the damage that occurred and without changing the picture this time, excellent. You can actually see in the aluminium where the wooden frame is for the rear planing shoe. And again, as someone researching a book, I look at that picture and I think, well, that shouldn't happen. Let's look at the drawings. And this is where I sound really sad. As a 16-year-old, I contacted Vosper Thornycroft, as it was then, and I said, oh, have you got any photographs or drawings of Crusader? And a very nice chap who signed the letter, Mr. L.G. Brown, Chief Weapons Designer, uh, apparently he was also the part-time archivist, copied all the drawings he could find and sent all the photographs he had copies of. So I referred back to these drawings, and there in, I think it's Jeff Brading's handwriting, was that the bottom was one inch thick plywood faced with three quarter inch aluminium on the planing surfaces. And I look at that picture and I think, where's the plywood then? Because there's no way aluminium would punch up through like that if it had a flat surface an inch thick behind. So a quick scurry through the documentation finds that, for some reason, the one-inch ply was left out. Uh, this may or may not have had something to do with the uh, use of mixed materials. As I said earlier, uh, if you hit a piece of aluminium, it bends in a different way to if you hit a piece of plywood. If you then fix the two together and they flex at a different rate, anything that fixes the two together will break which will come back to be told in a minute where it affects later events. 
little bit clearer. You can actually, I think you can quite clearly see the wood. Um, and I matched that to the drawings that I was sent and that is the exact structure as it should have been built lacking the one each sheet of ply that went behind. Um, this picture has not been seen before because it is always suggested that uh, Duquesne said we'll take the engine out, we'll do a full hull check and make some running repairs. And to do that, the engine was taken out. Harry Cole and Huey Jones went into the hull, banged the aluminium back down and put some wooden splints round, which they screwed through the side. So you then had a mix of brass screws, wood and aluminium sheet. Now, I was very, very fortunate, and I keep dropping names, I don't mean to. I was very fortunate to meet George Easton, who introduced me to his right-hand man, Bert Denley. Bert Denley didn't actually have much to do with Crusader. He just sort of went along with his boss, George, because he wanted to go to Scotland fishing. Uh, ended up driving the tractor that towed Crusader out every morning. And he took very few photographs, but he did take one of the whole in the aluminium. Um, I was concerned about putting this one in the book because I cannot find any record how this hull was repaired. But it clearly confirms there was no backing to the aluminium on the planing surfaces. And we have to ask ourselves, we're aiming for 250 miles an hour. Do you think three-quarters of an inch in aluminium is enough? And this picture, if anything, confirms no, it wasn't. It shows that the front shoe was deforming far more than any written report I've ever seen. I've seen no reference to, as I say, how it was repaired. Um, and I believe this picture was taken before the first inspection from inside the hull. It may be the reason they decided to inspect the hull. But it's clearly broken along the wooden framework contained within the craft. So that is how you do a hull inspection. The engine has to come out. And there's Lofty just there. I've just seen him. I always look for him. Always look for him. So, um, yeah. Check the bottom of the hull, see where the damage is. And you would thought the best thing to do would be to repair it as it is. But they didn't. The engine was reinstalled and Peter Duquesne returned from a quick uh, business trip back down to the south coast and then instructed his son, Charles, who was... Uh, I think 13 at the time, and Gordon Menzies, who's the son of Alex Menzies, who owns Temple Pier, and poor old Huey Jones, who was about here on me, I think, uh, to crawl into the hull past the fuel tank, because the engine's in now, and bang some bits of wood in. I think that's how Huey put it. Huey told me that he suggested maybe using one-inch ply, cut to shape between the frames we saw in the damage um, to a very tight interference fit was his word. 
tap those down to the, the aluminium that they were already hammered back into shape and then fix a frame round to try and hold it in place and was told it was too much work and it would take too, uh, too long to do. And of course they were doing this in a confined space when it would have been far easier when the hull was like this. So we have no forward hoop, we have no V on the planing surfaces, we have damage appearing on the front planing shoe, maybe because it wasn't V'd, who knows. And then for some bizarre reason, and again this can only be put down and I'm going to say it again, can only be put down to Peter Duquesne. The first man to drive Crusader uh, was Peter Duquesne at Porchester. When they arrived at Loch Ness, the first person to drive Crusader at any speed, and I think it was 104 miles an hour, was Peter Duquesne. And his first comment was that she got very fast, very quickly, had a tendency to hold her speed, which confirmed the graphs that the wind tunnel and tank tests had produced. Even on a closed throttle would continue to accelerate, but was, and I quote, a cow to turn. And unbeknown to anybody that I can see, because there is no communication apart from between Peter Duquesne and Jeff Brading at Vosper, they had a rudder ready to go. And although it followed the basic outline of the Thompson and Taylor one, it's cast in a single lump. It's extraordinarily heavy. I think it was phosphor bronze. I can't remember. It's in the book, so somebody can point it out if I'm wrong. The shaping's similar, but you can see on that line it's thicker. Even though it has been sharpened, it's a thicker material. And this is the smaller of the two that Vosmas had produced in case. And as I say, I can find no reference. Uh, the only letters I can find are between Railton and Thompson and Taylor, in which he says, it doesn't need to be big. We're not going for a manoeuvrability award. We're going for a straight line speed. It needs to be as small as it can be. And you can see on this how far this smaller, and I cannot, can't overemphasize smaller rudder, hangs below the back of the lower surface of the planing surface. That's a lot of drag. Now, the original rudder that I illustrated earlier, flat sheet, designed to snap off if uh, the attitude changes towards the direction of travel, but extraordinarily thin, but light in comparison to a cast metal rudder. And both of these Vospers produced rudders, and I can confirm roughly, and I think I did in the book, roughly when they were shipped up to Loch Ness after being manufactured, arrived at Loch Ness in an unmachined state. They hadn't, been, hadn't even been deburred from the foundry. So no tests done on balance, symmetry, weight, etc. Uh, but not only did this larger of the two rudders, and Again, there's a, a lovely chap I met, uh, Frank Liddell, or Lydell, who was uh, one of the timing chaps. He used to work at Coniston for the speed weeks, but he was present at Loch Ness. Walked in on a conversation between, um, I think it was Jeff Brading and John Cobb, which Cobb was saying, I don't like the new rudder, it just, it moves. I can feel it moving, I want it swapped back. 
Vosper's answer was to fit a bigger rudder. Uh, so they actually went for a slightly larger one. And uh, Frank told me that you, did, you very rarely saw John Cobb angry. And he said, but at Loch Ness, he saw him angry twice. And this was one of the occasions. So you have poor old John Cobb, who's got an excellent working relationship with Reed Routon, who's been his friend for years. They've worked together. This is 19... 52 at Loch Ness. They worked together originally in 1926. Uh, so, is that for me? <laughs> um, worked together. Excellent working relationship. And you get the impression, and it's not an impression I've tried to reinforce in any way in, in the book, you get the impression that they're to one side and Vospers are now stepping out of their role as the supplier. They're not listening to their client who has paid them. The client is saying, we need to do this, but Vospers are saying, we need the bigger rudder. Uh, the client is saying, we need to do that, and they say, no, no, we should do it this way. And to the point where, where Duquesne, uh, on one occasion, Duquesne had to go for a business meeting, no press release was uh, put out, but the statement was, the boat isn't to run. And when Cobb arrived at the pier, he said, it's flat enough, I just need to get some experience. He was told he couldn't drive his own boat. So there's friction, there's argument, there's debate about the materials being used. And I believe, and I cannot substantiate this, I believe it was about this time that... Routon found out that there was no forward ring bulkhead. And this is an a, uh, enlargement from the general arrangement drawing. And you can see the dotted line. That is exactly where the forward ring bulkhead would go. With the shoulder connections here and the base here from the mid ring bulkhead. And you can see the rudder would fix to it. The forward planing shoe would be supported by it, the punch loads would go into it, and the lifting eye would take the strain when it was lifted through the hoop. But it, as we now know, it wasn't installed. And this is at the point where the damage is beginning to become apparent. To the point where the engine was out, it was noticed that the mid-ring, or the forward ring as it had become, the mid-ring as it should have been, was actually out of a line with the transom. So the jet outlet was slightly to one side, so the entire craft was slightly banana-shaped, which must have alerted Routon to the fact that there were no waist-height alloy supports connecting the two ring bulkheads. So they're in trouble. And you can also see on that picture the depth of the rudder, and that was considered the maximum depth, I seem to remember, so. But, Crusader was indeed launched and asked to be tested by du uh, Peter Duquesne on not the most sensible of surfaces, at a lower speed, just to test the rudder. And Cobb agreed 
to run, disagreed with the use of the rudder, but the fact that the Thompson and Taylor rudder was still in the workshop when they packed up to go home would, would suggest that it had never been swapped back. So we are now in a situation where we have a damaged boat. We have a boat that's not necessarily been built to the specifications of the customer who has paid for the boat. And we also have uh, rumour and conjecture flying around within the project that Cobb needs to leave soon, he has somewhere to go. Um, again, in the book it says that this just isn't so. But it's interesting to see where those rumours and suggestions were generated from, from the operator of the craft, which was Vospers. And to just jump forward a little bit, it was very interesting to read in Arthur Bray's report. Arthur Bray was the commander in, time, uh, in charge of the timing. He worked for the, uh, I think it was the motorboating and yachting authority that oversaw attempts. And one of his biggest gripes was, these attempts should be run by the team and not to commercial interests. And you have to, literally have to take into account the only people at Loch Ness at that time with a commercial interest were the builder of the boat because it was going to be a good advert for them when it broke the record. So one has to ask, was Crusader being asked to do things it shouldn't have been done in the state it was in and who was doing it? Again, um, the one or two books that exist, uh, and again, I have to name names, Barry Stobart Hooksburg, and I got on very well with Barry and we had many discussions. His is one of the few books that says that Peter Jagain wrote to Cobb asking him not to exceed a certain speed. Um, he also quotes the letter's date as the 15th of September. And he also says there was a reply from Cobb saying he promised to keep the speed down and they would and take the record. And there was also this was it was Cobb's last record and they, he needed to get it as quickly as possible. But when you actually check the correspondence and you actually read the entire, le entire letters involved, Peter Kane actually says, I think speeds in excess of 220 miles an hour are more than acceptable as long as it's in calm conditions. And then he makes Cobb go out in rough conditions to test the rudder. So there's this continual um, conflict of what's being said and what's being done. But what you have to consider all through this of running a boat that's maybe not at 100%, is, is the damage finished with or is it a cumulative effect? So we come to the 29th of September and Reed Routness had to leave because he booked a return crossing. And he's in a train, on a train on the way to Southampton to sail back. Bert Denley drove him to the station and the conversation was, They've agreed to do some high speed runs. No attempt on the wreck will be made until I return and some modifications have been carried out. Yet on the morning of the 29th of September, newspaper articles said there were thousands of people around the lock waiting for the record attempt. Again, in their defence, I've seen no uh, record of a press release saying record attempt tomorrow. Um, 
the weather wasn't particularly good. They had to put a hold on for nearly three hours. So where thousands of people suddenly arrived from, I have no idea. But I have seen evidence in film and photography that the roads were blocked. And this is where you cannot take John Cobb's involvement in what was to happen. Vicky Cobb told me he wasn't a shy man, he was reserved. And she echoed what Doug Nye said to me, that reserved people aren't very good face to face, but give them a chance to put on a show for your benefit, they'll do this for you. And it is quite likely that as the Astrid, the trawler that the uh, Crusader was tied to, drifted further, further away from Temple Pier, that extended the run-up to the measured mile. It might be that Cobb thought, well, they've all turned out, I'll give them a bit of a shot, I'll just give it a little bit more throttle this time, and then got caught out by the extra run-up. It might be that Cobb got caught out by the fact that the speed drag resistance curve was a flat line, so when he took his foot off the throttle, it kept accelerating. Because it is likely that at some stage within the measured mile, Crusader hit just short of 237 miles an hour. When it encountered, some say, some don't say, three waves. Now, I looked very strongly into the three-wave theory and I have to, have to agree with the people that live on the lock. You do get reflected wakes, but there's no strength of them. But what we see with Crusader during a run is this is Crusader and the black shape you can see mid is the rudder. It's clear of the water, whereas the rear planing shoes are just touching the water, which is what they're supposed to do. So something has forced the bow up. And I have been very careful in the book to give information but not opinion. I was very careful to say, here are the facts, you go away and read it, and you decide, because you are never going to prove conclusively who shot Kennedy, who Jack the Ripper was, and you're certainly not going to prove with any uh, certainty what finally happened to Crusader. Something forced the hull up. I'm of the opinion it was the rudder fluttering and breaking away. But we'll never know. Um, this should work. So how does that... How do I get that to play then? Where's, where's the technical boffin? The black button. Oh, there you go. Your tension should really be on the top of the, front, uh, the top of the shot there. These are time-linked. And you can see it's certainly not a comfy ride. Not easy to see. So we'll repeat that again, one fifth speed. I would draw your attention to Cobb's head.
Now, having said I'm not one for opinion, I think it's fairly likely that Cobb was unconscious before the boat tipped in. Uh, some of the head movement, when you slow it down even further, is, I think we measured something like between 18 and 21 inches from full ascent to full descent. And on full descent, there's a steering wheel in the way. Now, if you stabilise this footage, which this isn't particularly stabilised, um, and then find the centre of gravity of the craft in perfect conditions, we measure the point at the centre of gravity that rose 8 inches, fell 10 inches, rose 21 inches and dropped 9 inches in just under half a second. And I find it extraordinary that only the people on the mooring in all their witness reports commented on how it was juddering as it went past, how it was bouncing, the noise it was making. And then you read Joyce Cronk's report and Peter Duquesne's report, and I won't go into position of people, that's in the book. Um, it was riding beautifully, and then there was an explosion. Uh, much was made of the three waves. I don't think they... It moved more than three times, shall we say. But it's, I think, probably thankful that Cobb must have been, at the very least, unconscious before the boat crashed. Not nice to watch. Unfortunately, uh, Cobb was found... Uh, nearly in his May West. Uh, Huey Jones, bless him, when he was describing the scene, and this is Huey at the back of the boat, Harry Cole's at the front, Arthur Bray's doing an examination. Harry Cole, um, Huey Jones actually cried when he talked to me about this, and he said, we lifted him by his May West, and she nearly fell out, and it, Cobb was a big, big man. And Huey, bless him, as I say, was extraordinarily wiry and strong, but for the two of them to lift a man of Cobb's size, uh, they said they nearly lost him twice, and his description was, we knew it was over, he was just a bag of bones, and then he just left the room. Um, they had the job not only of clearing up after this, but they also had the job of trying to find out why it had gone the way it had gone. And we have to return to the things that I've said before. Here, we can see the wooden bulkhead that is supposed to be where the alloy ring bulkhead was, and you can blatantly see it's cut at the bottom as well, and another piece of wood has been let in, and here, there's a void. And that bracket there is all that held the rudder in. And that's how it looked looking up through the hull. And you can, again, clearly see different grain pattern. So it cannot be a single sheet. So I looked at this and I thought, how do I write this without thinking or suggesting to people that the serious errors were made 
And I'm, just as I was thinking that, I looked at the drawing and I found this joint, which is in the frame by the cockpit, which is just behind where the planing shoe was and the rudder and where the alloy ring bulkhead was supposed to be. So basically, Crusader had nearly been built with a hinge in the middle. Um, I can't defend it, I can't condone it. That's how it was built. Why? I have no idea. Why was the bulkhead left out? Why was there no V on the planing surfaces? Why was the rudder changed? There's, I think I found nine factors that you, you can't... You just can't accept why they were included. And I saw this and I thought, There's, this isn't the three waves, this is a structural failure. So much of a structural failure, you can actually see the bow with the pitot tube has gone. And that spurt is coming out through the cockpit. So water is coming in through where the bow has separated and up through. You can't see that from the other side. Um, so the structure was completely wrong. It wasn't built to how it's supposed to be built. It's difficult not to uh, put blame on someone. I can defend them by saying it's of its time, the materials weren't up to. And I've said this several times, and I, I really do firmly believe firmly believe that Railton's thinking outstripped the materials that he was allowed to work with, what was available to him, whilst also fighting a company that built motor torpedo boats. And I have to say, I firmly also believe that Vospers were totally out of their depth. Uh, had this been built by Saunders Row along the same lines as the SRAO one metal flying boat, would it have worked? I don't know. But I think that hull, built in modern uh, composites, Kevlar, carbon fibre, would work. And I know there's a very clever man here who happens to be married to Lofty's daughter who can prove this because he builds carbon fibre boats, but he hasn't launched his boat yet, and I'm hoping he will. And this will prove, I'm convinced it will work. For Cobb's part, well, it was the end. Uh, the Union of International Motor Boating took the extraordinary step of issuing a record certificate for a run that didn't qualify for a record. Uh, the people of Loch Ness gathered together and from Inverness and Drummond and Rocket made a, a collection and built a stone cairn. The name Cobb around that area is still revered by the people that met or just been told about him. For Reed Routon's part, he more or less walked away from record breaking. Behind the scenes he had ideas though. Uh, and he conversed with the executor of Cobb's Will about, and I quote, proving there wasn't much wrong with it. And they started to look into a Crusader too. Simultaneously, George Easton, and he was put in an incredibly difficult situation, was desperate to work with Railton on this 
project, whilst also being badgered by one Donald Malcolm Campbell for Castrol's money for his own craft. And originally, as we all know, um, Campbell was going to go for the Harmsworth Trophy with a prop rider, knowing Cobb was going to succeed. Then we have Loch Ness, and steps went towards the water speed record for Donald. So who should knock on Reed Routon's door but my old chum and mentor, Ken Norris, and the design of Bluebird K7. And Ken told me that on many meetings with Reed Routon, build it as strong as you can, Ken. Whatever you do, don't skimp, build it strong. And to that end, all metal frame, all metal construction, nice narrow axial flow jet to keep the, side, the center of gravity down. And we all know K7's record and we'll stop there because we know what's going on at the moment. But that worked. That also worked with flat planing surfaces, curiously. I think there was a little V on the outside of the surface of Neil. Little, little bits of V, not distinctive Vs. But that worked with a flat planing surface. So we have to take that into account. So did Routon leave the water speed record behind with K7? No. This would have been Crusader 2, reverting back to the dagger-like sponsons that Reg Beauchamp told me about from the first drawing. A long body with an axial flow jet and the curious one and a half step front. And you can see there how it would rise onto the wider surface and then eventually at speed plane on the middle surface. And that picture was sent to me by Richard Noble. I was thinking of buying the model and I just thought to sit on my sideboard and me polish it with beeswax once every six months was probably a waste of a very historic device. Um, Richard said, is it for sale? I said, yes. And the chap who had it, Nick Moat, bless him, phoned me up and said, I've just had Richard Noble on my door buying a model off me. And he'd literally been reading Richard's book when Richard knocked on the door. So Richard is now custodian of Crusader 2. So is that the end of the story? Well, no. It's all very well sitting down thinking, I'm going to write a book. I've got a theory. I'm going to do an analysis and I'm going to be right. Prove it. Prove you're right. Be that man down the pub with a beer that says, I know this is what happened because I've got all the evidence. But I didn't. I had figures, I had analysis, I had data. What I didn't have was the wreckage. And enter my new chum, Craig Wallace, who went out on Loch Ness with Alex Menzies' son, Gordon, with a little submarine, and found Crusader. And he sent me this image and said, we've got her. She's nowhere near where we thought she was, but you're right, she didn't blow apart, she's intact. And I looked at that and I thought, I can make that out. And that's how she looks now. And you can see, I can't, but you can see, that is the front alloy 
ring bulkhead. That's the stern. This is the underneath of the hull. One sponson has remained on and one has gone. And it has snapped where the alloy ring bulkheads end. And you can just see the engine in the front. For more clarity, the first thing I thought when I saw that was if that had had three alloy rings, I'd be looking at a cockpit. And if I was looking at a cockpit, that might have been intact with a seat in it and a seat belt. And had that been the case, would Cobb have died an old man of 80 on his own, in his room, drinking his bourbon, which he liked, reading the paper because he didn't like mixing with people? And I can't help thinking it's a possibility. Had Crusader been built to spec, it would have worked. And the separation of the nose is more than apparent. And it just shows that when you look back in history and you see things as they're reported, they're not necessarily as you expect them to be. I'm fortunate in that technology's moved along and I can see something that Railton never could. And I would like, I would have loved dearly to have sat down with him and Peter again and said, well, here's the modern evidence. Now have your discussion. Because I think the result would have been completely different. So that, I think, is a, a sad end to a very gallant man who probably deserved better, but because of the way he was being quiet and reserved, as Vicky told me, not shy, reserved, probably could have gone on to take the record in 53, which is actually his ultimate plan. And the saddest thing I read in all the letters was, a <laughs> again, I'm going to drop a name, is a very, sad, a very uh, interesting communication from Peter Duquesne. said, we had done the drawings for the V surfaces for 53 when we had, uh, thought we'd achieved between 250 and 300. So one of the major contributors, contributions to the accident, the lack of V to the planing surfaces, that had been steadfastly refused to be included by Vospers, had been drawn up. It was to be included, but for some reason in 53 and not 52. So, again, I'm not going to point fingers. I'll let you decide. But I hope you've learned something from that. I learned something incredibly helpful to me through writing the book. Um, if it's not your thing, I tried to make the book interesting. So please feel free to buy one. And I believe that's time for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Holter. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I certainly know a lot more about the boat now. So thank you very much indeed. A very, very in-depth talk. Now, um, are there any questions? We're going to have the light. Oh, goodness me. Right. Okay.
Yes, sir, there you go. Thank you, very interesting. Uh, what's the advantage of having the aft sponsons, as in Crusader, compared to the forward sponsons in uh, Bluebird? Originally, um, one, of the, one of the things uh, I discussed earlier was the uh, tendency for the flat-fronted Ventnor hulls to uh, rewrote and described as kite, aerodynamic rather than hydrodynamic. And at the time, the thinking was, if you can produce an aerodynamically neutral shape, uh, it didn't lend itself to the width. And when Railton had originally decided to try and turn it round in the time of a propeller engine, there, there was a drawing done for a prop-driven version uh, but you would need a vertical gearbox, so a stacked gearbox to take the drive down. So, there's, in this particular instance, the thinking was a narrow hull front to rear. And then by removing any kite area between the sponsor and arms, you'd then neutralise any lift there. But one of the problems I had in the model test was if there was a tendency by Vospers to strike the arms back, so, so to increase the wheelbase, if you like, of the hull, they would angle the arms and as soon as they angled them that presented a slope surface to the air and it kept lifting the front and they lost several models through uh, high-speed accidents it was basically to produce a narrow front there i think there's been three what you would what are described in america as canard hydroplanes in unlimited hydroplane racing and i can't remember the name of one of them at the moment um, and they've never been very successful and there is a school of thought that the reverse three-pointer may not be the way to go. Uh, Tony Fahey tried with British Pursuit K8, but as the hull really wasn't the, the final product, that was never proved to work as a reverse three-pointer. My argument is Crusader did work. The structure failed. So the advantage is... Uh, to be more concise than all that babbling was narrowness, lack of aerodynamic, uh, a reduced aerodynamic front, frontal area and the ability to be able to strip away a lot of the aerodynamic area to reduce drag and the three surfaces to reduce hydrodynamic drag. Lovely. We've got another question down here. Steve? Yeah, Steve, um, has any of the, uh, the academics in the West Midlands at at the universities ever trying to replicate this on CFD? I believe they are. Um, I did it in CFD as part of my analysis. Uh, a friend of mine, who a lot of people here know, um, Ernie Lazenby, who is an incredibly good model maker, in fact, he made the smaller of the two huge models. Uh, we discussed it. As I was looking into the, um, the rudder aspect, uh, thinking along the lines of rudder, flutter and failure. Uh, Ernie emailed me and said, what are you doing as it, when it comes to rudders? And I said, I'll send you the bit of manuscript. And he had replicated the accident, I think, 12 times out of 12, simply by flicking the rudder to full helm at speed. Every time he just flicked the lever, the nose went in. Um, I got it to do it on CFD, and a computer, several computer models, it all pointed to that area. And by producing a, a, a sorry, 
by introducing a large surface area or a larger frontal area at that very point, slightly ahead of centre of gravity, a diagonal line, it just caused a tipping every time. So, yeah, a lot of people have looked into it and as yet we've yet to be proved wrong. OK, I've not got another question at the back here. Hello, Steve, it's Neil. Hi, Neil. Could be a bit of a controversial question, considering what's going on with Bluebird. I'll get me coat. <laughs> but um, any plans to, you know, you know where it is, and the people who, you know, took the photos know where it is. Are there any plans to retrieve the wreckage? Here's a short answer. Um, Vicky Cobb had every single bit of floating jetsam and flotsam uh, taken off the water, put on the pier, and a funeral pyre burnt, uh, burnt as a funeral pyre. And as soon as K6 was located in Loch Ness, it had an historic monument order slapped on it. Scottish laws different to England. You can't even dive on it. Okay. No, no. And to be honest, with, I'll, I'll use the, the K word, K7's all metal construction, probably more worthwhile. K6 is wood. As soon as it touches the surface, you've lost it. OK, another question. Maybe the last one for the evening. I'm conscious of the time. And so, it's Neil, yes. it's going to be the hardest one. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. OK, thank you very much. <laughs> My question, Steve, is in all the correspondence that you read, it seems to me that you've made a case that Vospers really didn't build what they should have built. Mm -hmm. Was there ever any correspondence along the lines of we should stop this now because we haven't really got what we designed and this isn't going to be fit for purpose? Or was it just a case of we'll just try and sort of inch it to where we need to get to and then mm. fingers that, crossed? That's a scholarly question. Um, no, there isn't. And, you know, I'd never even consider that. I don't think I've read once, are we going the right route? Should we stop and have a... Uh, a refigure of what we're doing. Not once, no. Um, and again, I'm loath to point fingers anywhere. Somebody possibly should have done. I think, unfortunately, Cobb was just, as I've described him, such a gentle giant. He did what was going on around him. Uh, and I think it was you in your gracefully, gratefully accepted re uh, review on Amazon said... Uh, you could read my frustration in the book. I think Reid Relton just had his hands and feet tied, being where he was, and distance was his enemy. Uh, if I was going to be pushed, I would say, I think Vosper's really neat, took their eye off the ball, and they should have said, this isn't going well, what can we do? As I say, I find the whole thing as a, a client and, or customer and a supplier and I don't think Vosper's acted like that. So, no, that's a good point. Maybe I should do volume two.